0: her, and if you don't love her, it's only because you don't know her yet, Um, but Sarah Laidebor has been serving as our student minister here since October of 2009, Uh, and, and she's been a blessing to our students through her leadership, through her teaching, through just how she has given her heart. To those students in that ministry. Uh, and so uh, sadly for us, Sarah will be transitioning in a few weeks, uh, too few of weeks. In uh, next Sunday will be her last Sunday here as a paid staff member. Uh, the next Sunday, she's coming back uh, just because she wants to. Uh, and then she'll be moving to, to Michigan. And so um, over the next few weeks, we'll be saying our goodbyes. And we, we hate that, but we love to see what God will be doing through her as she moves uh, to a ministry at a Christian camp uh, in the area where she where she. where grew up, and so, um, so be praying for Sarah, uh, and also I'm, I'm just glad Sarah has this opportunity today to lead us through uh, the story of Esther. As we're going through the story, uh, we're in chapter 20 this week, because uh, I, th- I believe Sarah knows a little something about being a woman of God in the right place at the right time with the courage to do what God has called her to do, and so let's invite Sarah this morning.
1: This is a little different than my normal crowd. I love it. Um, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to to speak to all of you this morning. Um, Like Steve said, we're looking at the book of Esther this week, Um, the queen of beauty and courage, according to the story. Um, So if you want to follow along and you have your story books, it is chapter 20. Um, If not, it's in the Pew Bibles, it's its own book. Esther will be doing a crash course through the whole thing. Steve told me there is no time limit today, so... Buckle up. Um, First, when he gave me the opportunity to preach, I was like, sure, you ask the girl to preach the message about the girl, I get it, like, okay, I see how it goes, but as I studied the book and got into it this week, I realized what he was actually up to. Um, The book of Esther provides a lot of unique challenges um, that a lot of preachers like to avoid altogether, Um, so I'm not going to say he was trying to avoid it, but maybe, I, I don't know. Um, I just, I jumped at the opportunity regardless. Um, But it's a challenge because the author never mentions God. Um, Nobody explicitly prays in the book of Esther. Um, She hides her Jewish identity. And before she's married, she spends a night with the king. You can leave that to your imagination, what happens there. And, And so usually a sermon on Esther focuses on the key phrase, for such a time as this. Or maybe her popular line, if I perish, I perish. And we'll get to that, but there's so much more going on here. And so in my time with you today, I want to take a minute to embrace the difficulties that this text presents. Um, If God's name isn't mentioned and Esther allows her morals to be compromised, we can't ignore that. I think these difficulties are things that the Holy Spirit allows us to wrestle with. They're, They're the twists that draw our attention to points that we often miss. So, um... We're going to get into that. Before we do, we're going to play a game for a second. Um, we like games. I'm a youth pastor. We do this often. And, and so this game is um, it's like a quiz. So sometimes when you have a quiz, you have true or false questions or you have multiple choice. Um, sometimes a quiz comes down to opposites. So we're going to test your knowledge of opposites. Um, so, for example, we pick yes or we pick no. The opposite of cold is... Hot, okay, good. the opposite of tall is short. the opposite of happy is sad, okay, so we get opposites well um, there are also these things in the other, in the English language I, I studied English in college for like a week, and um, there's these other things in the English language when you 're comparing two or three objects called comparatives and superlatives, which that's superlative it's an awesome word. Um, but a comparative and the superlative, it, it takes, like, the word good. And um, one step up from good is better. And what's better than good is best. So the superlative is best. So if we take the word sad, the comparative would be sadder. And the superlative, what's sadder than sad, is saddest. So if I said big, then bigger than big is biggest. And, and if I said fast... Faster than fast would be? And if I said cool, what's cooler than being cool? Ice cold. Someone got it. That's great. (laughs) Give me a mic and I turn into a rapper. I don't know how that happens. Um, But Esther here, Esther's not in a choice of opposites. Okay, that's why we did this little quiz. She's not in a multiple choice. She's not in yes or no. Yes or no is like a good choice and a bad choice. But she is dealing with comparatives and superlatives. She's got bad... Or worse. She's trading certain death for possible death. She turns from no hope to maybe some hope. It's not necessarily a good situation. And and so the temptation in preaching on Esther is to stuff her into this hero mold. She she picked the good answer and, and make her seem like Daniel or something like that. But it's not necessarily the case with her, because we don't know that she actually had a good good choice going on. And and so the story as we get into it, you'll see it also holds all sorts of details about the unseen providence of God and and how he works through her courage and her faithfulness, Um, but looking at that alone ignores a lot of the other truth that the author includes. So as we jump in to the story this week, we're going to look at it from the viewpoint that the author did everything intentionally. Um, He didn't accidentally forget to mention the name of God or prayer or scripture. Um, He could have left out the embarrassing details that would bring shame on a Jewish girl, Um, But it's all included for a reason. Um, Maybe he intended to make us uncomfortable about Esther. So while the story certainly is about Israel's deliverance from death and extinction, it equally reveals the imperfect circumstances and people that God uses. Esther shows us that God isn't looking for perfect people who are talented and influential. He's only looking for people who are willing I love that the Stinitz opened up the sermon here by, by sharing what they're doing. They're, they're people who are willing. Extraordinary moves of God begin with ordinary acts of obedience. So let's dig in here. In the beginning of the book, we are introduced to King Xerxes. Xerxes is reigning. It's 60 years after the exile and after the temple was rebuilt, like we talked about last week. And, and Xerxes is a powerful king. He is wealthy like his dad, Darius, was before him, and he's not shy about this wealth at all. So when we meet him, he's throwing a banquet. For the last 180 days, he's had his, all of his wealth and his splendor on display. He's been showcasing the palace, and now he's throwing a seven-day banquet, and everyone in the city is invited to attend. They're allowed to eat and to drink as much as they want. Um, The closest thing I can compare it to is my family, like Christmas Eve or Thanksgiving celebrations. It's just like this feast all day, and we're grazing at the table, and it seems to never run out of food. The buffet is just always full, and it lasts for a couple hours. Um, And I know how I feel after that. I can't imagine seven days of feasting at this elaborate banquet. But um, on the seventh day, the king is a little tipsy or maybe a lot, because it's been seven days. And, and so he orders his men to bring in the queen, um, and she refuses to come. We, we know that she was beautiful and that she was lovely to look at, and so most likely she doesn't want to be paraded around like a prize pony in front of all these men at the party. So in verse 12, chapter 1, it says, The king became furious and burned with anger. He's so furious to like sum a lot up really quick that he decides to dethrone her. Um, She's never again allowed to enter into his presence to enter the palace. She's gone. So it was a unique feature of the culture at that time um, that once a law was written, it couldn't be revoked. So it's the same reason Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, even though Darius was kind of having a change of heart. He couldn't get him back out um, because once the king spoke the word, there was no going back. So Xerxes speaks the word and she's gone and and he goes off to war and gets back and over time he starts to miss his queen. He starts regretting his decision a little bit. And so essentially he holds this beauty pageant of sorts, um, starring as many as 400 girls from 127 provinces surrounding surrounding his, his palace. And so the girls receive a year of beauty treatments and food, and they're living in the king's harem, and it's at this point that we meet our star of the day, Esther. Um, Esther is an orphan. She is adopted by her cousin Mordecai, who's a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, that, um, that links him with the most conservative, spiritually sensitive nation of Judah. Um, so while most girls would have jumped at the chance to try out for queen, um, we see in chapter 2, verse 8, that Esther was taken. The Hebrew wording here for was taken um, is passive. It's it suggesting that she was taken by force. She didn't select this job assignment, but it was chosen for her, and she was taken. And as we continue to read in chapter 9, um, we see that she, um, there's this eunuch who's in charge of the girls, and she pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food, um, he assigned attendance to her, specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and um, her attendants into the best place in the harem. So she's kind of winning over the heart of the guy who's in charge of all these girls, which is a good, good place to be. Um, Mordecai, her, her cousin meanwhile, he's hanging out in the courtyard, and he's keeping an eye on her, but from a distance. Um, he'd advised her not to share her family background with anybody and to keep it a secret that she was a Jew. Um, So she does that, and as we continue on, we learn a little bit more about her and what, what she is to everybody who's there. It says in verse 15 that she won the favor of everyone who saw her. We start to get a glimpse that, yes, Esther is physically beautiful. We know this because she was chosen, but this thing about her that draws people to her is coming from the inside. She was initially chosen for her outer beauty, but it's her internal beauty and her character that set her apart from the rest of the women. So, four years now have gone by since the queen was dismissed, and Esther finds favor and approval with the king, and she's declared queen. She wins the beauty pageant. She's crowned. It's done. And so, she is queen now, but even though she's queen, we still read this. It's chapter 2, verse 20. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. So even though Esther is in the palace and probably has all these royal advisors at her hands, it doesn't matter. She's still heeding the advice of her cousin Mordecai. She's doing it as she had done, when he was bringing her up. this secret-keeping thing is nothing new to Esther. She's the original pretty little liar, okay? She's keeping the secrets. And so, because Esther is listening to what Mordecai says, um, when something bad happens, she's, she's still paying attention, and so here's what happens, he, um, Mordecai sitting at the gate hears an assassination plot against the king, and he sends word to Esther. Um, so Esther tells the king, and she gives Mordecai all of the credit for it. Um, And so the two men who are responsible for the plot are impaled on a pole. That's kind of crazy. And it gets written down in the history books, which is an important detail to tuck away for later. And then that's the last we hear about it for a while. And so we start to see that in her position, where God has placed Esther was not merely for her own pleasure or benefit, But what God desires to do for others through us plays a part in every position he gives us. Mordecai was given a position as a caregiver for his orphan cousin, and it was an ordinary act of obedience for him to raise a child that wasn't his. But the knowledge that he instilled in her was groundwork for an extraordinary move of God to be revealed. So then in chapter 3, a new official, um, with this, these two being impaled, they need to, to hire a few. And, and so this new official is promoted. His name's Haman, and he enters the scene. and He's the most powerful official in all of the empire. And everyone bows down to him whenever he passes by. It's, it's kind of like Steve makes us do in the office. Um, it's, it's really weird, I know. Um, but Mordecai is a Jew who only worships God... Refuses to bow down or to show him any respect. So, why? Like, why now? He knows the consequences, and after keeping quiet and encouraging Esther to fly under the radar, why now is he taking a stand? Maybe it's because of of the nationality of Haman. He was kind of raised um, with a prejudice against the Jews, he's an enemy of the Jews. Um, Maybe he's finally decided that enough is enough, and and he won't defile his beliefs any longer by bowing to the enemy. Um, Either way, I love what it shows us. It, It shows us that it's never too late to take a stand. There might be consequences, there might be a price to pay, but God always honors the person who chooses to bow before him. It's an ordinary act of obedience of Mordecai to bow to God alone. But the officials call him out on it day after day for refusing to comply. Um, They alert Haman, the the highest official, and Haman's outraged. He wants Mordecai gone. But he's also learned Mordecai's nationality. He knows he's a Jew, and, and so he knows that the reason Mordecai isn't bowing down is his faith. So therefore, killing Mordecai alone is not going to solve the problem. Haman decides he has to destroy all the Jews. So he casts lots, and he decides on a day of doom, nearly one year later, they're going to annihilate all the Jews. Um, And then he decides he needs to take his plan to the king and manipulate him a little bit. So in chapter 3, verse 8, we read, there is a certain people, he can't even say their name, he won't even say Jews, but just a certain people, dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate except not really, because the Jews have assimilated so well into the culture that there's one living in your palace and you don't even know it. Um, Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. But hold up a second, because other than this one instance of not bowing down— Mordecai's actually been in complete compliance with the law with the king as far as we can tell um, It was just the last chapter that his tip is what saved the king's life So that doesn't sound to me like anybody who's out to get the king um, But Haman bribes the king to bring destruction to the jews and, and so even though Haman is a half-truth speaker and a deceiver and an all-out liar He's not a dumb man He, he is cunning and crafty and he twists Mordecai's actions to seem like this rebellion based on religion And the king listens to it. Um, He issues a decree declaring that on the appointed day, all the Jews will be put to death and their property will be given to those that killed them. So the Jews had one year to prepare for the day of their deaths. Can you imagine the threat of that living over you for a year? The stress and the anguish and the fear? But again, even before Haman came up with the idea of wiping out the Jews, God had already put Esther in place, and an extraordinary move of God is about to be revealed through her ordinary act of obedience. So the Jews at this point are a mess. They're fasting, and they're mourning, and they're wailing, and Mordecai sends word to Esther that she needs to do something. And even though Esther is queen, however, she's not allowed to visit the king uninvited. Um, Usually that would mean death. We remember what happened to the last queen who did something, who displeased the king. She got booted out. So Esther sends word back to Mordecai that she can't do it. Um, And then Mordecai in chapter four, um, he gives her three reasons why she must. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Essentially, you're going to go down with them. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Basically, one way or another, God will deliver his people. Pause, pause that verse for a second and think about that for us today. God wants to accomplish his purpose through us. I think we can all agree on that. But if we don't cooperate, his plan will still be carried out. We might miss out on the joy of being a part of it, but even when we are faithless in our God-given tasks, God remains faithful. It's so interesting throughout the Bible, all the many times when we see God calling someone to do something, and they have this long list of excuses to offer him of why they can't do it. But God doesn't ever seem surprised, and he doesn't change his mind. Saying, not me, not now, doesn't limit God's fulfillment of his plan, it just limits our participation in the greater story he's writing that we can't see yet. And so then Mordecai gets to his third point. He says, and who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. One of my favorite other translations of it says, perhaps this is the moment for which you have been created. So Esther takes that advice to heart, and she has Mordecai rally her crew. Um, For three days and nights, they fast. um, And at the end of it, she decides she's going to see the king. And, And her last words in the conversation are, and if I perish, I perish. That's faith. That's what I love. Those are the words of a person who is willing, a person who is about to find themselves in the midst of an extraordinary act of God to say, you know what? I'm all in. If I die, I die. But at least I'm going down serving the Lord. At least I'm going down doing what he asked of me. True faith is believing that God is who he says he is and will do all he's promised to do. And I'm holding on to that promise. I'm willing. This is my ordinary act of obedience. That's the kind of confidence I see there. And I love it. At the same time, though, think about her emotions during those three days. Even if the king spares her, her role, her relationship as queen is still in jeopardy. I imagine there's a lot going on in her mind during this period of fasting and praying, of seeking God and waiting on him. And so the three days go by, and and she goes before the queen, maybe trembling, maybe a little apprehensive, and and he asks her in chapter 5-3, he says, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? What a powerful answer to prayer! From the moment she enters the inner court of the palace, it's, it's as if he knows something is going on that she's taking this risk to approach him uninvited, and, and he doesn't even say what's your request. He goes further and says, "Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you." So Esther knows that this is still a delicate. Situation: She's come before the king, and, and he's, he's responded favorably, but it's still delicate. She also knows how much her king likes a good party. So she doesn't make the big ask for her people quite yet. Instead, she invites the king and Haman to a banquet she's already prepared. It says, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. This isn't cold feet, I need to buy myself more time, so I'm going to ask him to come to a banquet, and, and maybe I'll figure out what to do while we're waiting. But no, this is a premeditated feast. It's a banquet I have prepared. So the king and Haman agree, they go to this banquet, and they eat, and they drink, and then at the big moment, right when we think she's going to make the big ask, she instead asks him to come to another banquet. And at that banquet, the next day, she'll tell the king what she really wants. And so at first, it's a little annoying, like, okay, girl, like, let's get to it here. But what happens that day, that night in between banquets is incredible. It's, I love it. So Haman sees Mordecai that night after the banquet. Haman can't even handle the sight of Mordecai, good guy. Haman literally has everything he could want. He has no reason anymore to not tolerate Mordecai, but but it's just another example of how the flesh is never satisfied. And, and so revenge has so consumed Haman that instead of getting over it, killing Mordecai is the only suggestion he's happy with to move past things. So he goes home and he schemes with his wife and his friends, and they um, they decide impaling is the answer. It's always the answer. And so they build a pole, with the intention to impale Mordecai as soon as the king grants his approval. It was a, a big poll, kind of crazy. So, the same, I don't know, like, how did they get him up there if it's that, I don't know. So, the same night after the banquet, um, the king is dealing with a bout of insomnia. Um, so, he asks one of his guys to read him the book of the history of his reign. Now, I don't know about you. Um, But when I can't sleep, I always ask somebody to read me a history book. It's awesome now that I have a roommate again who used to be a history teacher. It's like bedtime stories all around. I sleep great. But that's not true, actually, at all. Um, But in this reading, this reading of the history book, the king comes across the story of Mordecai foiling the plot to kill the king. The same plot we read about three chapters ago, the same plot that Esther told the king about. And so the king realizes that Mordecai was never rewarded for saving his life, and and something needs to be done for him. An extraordinary act of God is about to be revealed through Mordecai's ordinary act of obedience to the king a few chapters back. At the same time, different scene, Haman happens to show up to ask the king's permission to kill Mordecai on that pole he built for him, not knowing that the king wants to reward Mordecai. This is the part of the story where if it was a Hollywood film, we would be on the edge of our seats. We, we think this whole book is about Esther, and we realize that this is thrown in there, and there's so much more, and what's Mordecai's fate? What's going to happen? And the tension just keeps building. Before Haman can ask the king's permission to impale Mordecai, the king presents him with a hypothetical situation. He says, what should I do? That's my king voice. What should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Haman, in his arrogance and thinking the king must be talking about him, pours it on real thick. He tells the king that the person should receive royal robes and and should be paraded around on one of the king's horses and officials should shout and everyone will know that he's received the highest honor of the king. And so then in that ironic twist of events we love where the good guy wins and the bad guy goes down, the king says, excellent, I love it, quick, take the robes, take my robes, take my horse, do just as you have said for Mordecai, the Jew, leave out nothing you have suggested. And I love it because it's so funny. Like, not only does Haman present this grand parade of honor, and not only does it turn out to be for Mordecai, but Haman has to be the one to implement the plan for Mordecai, his enemy. It's awesome. And all of this is before the second banquet even happens. It's all in that pause where she's waiting before Esther's even had the chance to spare the lives of her and her people. And so then the second banquet does come, we do get to that part of the story, and and the king asks what he can do for Esther. And she says this in chapter 7, she says, "'If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request.' for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes then looks at Esther and he he responds, who is he? Where is he, the man who would do such a thing? Esther said an adversary, an enemy, this vile, Haman. And I imagine she points at him because he's at the table, and and he turns white because of what's happening right now. And and so finally, Haman, the king's trusted advisor and friend, is turned in. And the king gets up in a rage, and he leaves, and, and he decides Haman's fate immediately. And then, in another bout of irony, not only is Haman going to die, but the king demands that he's impaled on that very pole he built the night before for Mordecai. That's right. That same day, Xerxes gave all of Haman's property to King Esther. Mordecai is appointed in charge of it. And then Esther goes before the king again, pleading on behalf of her people. And this time the king issues a new decree, one that gives the Jews in every city the authority to unite and defend their lives. So on the exact day the Jews were supposed to be killed, not only were they allowed to live, but they were also granted permission to slaughter anyone who might attack them. Chapter 8, verse 17, um, even goes so far as to say, and many people of other nationalities became Jews themselves because fear of the Jews had seized them. All of a sudden, the Jews go from the people who are about to be killed to, to people who are feared by everybody else. And so the Jews did slaughter and attack, and, and Mordecai was promoted to the palace. Xerxes becomes great among the Jews, and, and he even speaks up for their welfare. Um, it's the happy ending that we want. It's that, that little bow. It's, it's the story of ordinary people who are willing The Jews are spared. The day set for their destruction is the day of their deliverance. An extraordinary move of God was revealed through ordinary acts of obedience. There's so many plot twists in the book of Esther. The bad guys ahead, the good guys ahead. It's hard for us to keep up with it all. And when I read about some of those twists, when I read about the Jews being sentenced to death or Haman's plot to end Mordecai, the good guy's life, I think of all the times where I'm at the bottom. All the times where I think, surely this is the end, where where I feel defeated and I want to give up. But it's at those times when I'm most vulnerable and broken that I'm in the best position to see God at work. Just when your enemy seems to have the upper hand, place your trust in God and realize that the day set for your destruction may actually be the day of your deliverance. We have two choices today going forward out of here. We can operate out of fear fear. We can operate out of faith. Through God's sovereignty and, and Esther's willful obedience, He used Esther to save the people from annihilation. But that's hard for us because fear creeps in and we don't always know what to do with fear. Fear is scary, fear is, is unknown, and we fear obedience because it might mean surrender or letting go of something we love. It might mean sacrifice. It's hard for us to let go of something we deeply love. Yet, When we are obedient, God gives us far more than we could dream. The spiritual blessings outweigh the sacrifice every time. One Sunday morning in college, um, I climbed out of bed and I I got ready for church. And I'd been in Lakeland for a month and a half, um, and I hadn't found a church yet. But to me, being obedient meant finding one and, and getting involved somewhere. Going to church was a very, very ordinary, normal thing for me to do. And eight years ago, to this week, I stepped foot into this building for the first time. I'd like to think that that ordinary act of obedience on a Sunday morning led me to be part of an extraordinary move of God here at Legacy Christian Church. I didn't know it then, eight years ago. I'd driven past the building earlier in the week and I thought it looked cool. It was silver at the time. It kind of looked like a barn, and I lived in the country, so let's do it. But this church became so much more than that. It became a foundational piece of my entire adult life. I've seen God do amazing, extraordinary things. When I walked through those doors for the very first time, I had no idea that I would end up walking through them another 2,000 times. When they needed somebody to help vacuum the church a couple times a week, I had no idea that one morning when I came in to do that, I'd be caught in Wes's office and and asked to teach a lesson to a group of middle schoolers on a Wednesday night. And as I taught those middle schoolers in some creepy house, uh, I had no—it's not creepy anymore—but as I taught them over there, I had no idea that a year later it would be my full-time job for the next five. I was not perfect— or talented, or influential, I was simply a 19-year-old girl from Michigan who was willing. And I found myself in the middle of an extraordinary move of God. It makes me wonder what I will look back on in another eight years, what's happening in my life right now that seems like such an ordinary obedience. I wonder what extraordinary moves of God are taking place that I don't even realize yet. And that's, that's just me, and this isn't even about me, but each and every person here today, each one of you, is in the middle of a move of God that you may not even know about yet. And each person here is faced with that choice to live in fear or faithful obedience. You can pick fear because the future is unknown and, and fear is easy and, and you don't know where you're going. Or like Mordecai or Esther, you can pick obedience because you trust in the God who holds the future. If You're living in that fear right now because you don't know God or or you can't feel him as close as you once did. Please know this, that even when we feel God is silent, we can be confident that he is working and orchestrating all things with exact precision for his glory and our holiness. Obedience to God means pushing past that fear. We hear, so often I shared this in youth group a couple weeks ago, we hear, trust in the Lord and he will make your path straight. But when did we confuse straight for smooth? Our story today shows us that the path is not smooth. But does God get us from point A to point B according to his will and plan? Absolutely, all the time. Straight means that God will get us there, but it doesn't mean anything about the condition of the road in between. The verse doesn't say smooth, but it does say who is directing all those paths. It does give us that assurance. Much like Esther, we live in a very unpredictable world. Straight and smooth usually feel more like shattered and broken. And if that's your world, I'm sorry. And I I pray you find some help in the story of Esther, some some help and some hope in the story of Esther. I pray that you understand that God's love um, is infinite for his world and for his people. The reason that we need to understand it is because otherwise it's so easy. It's so easy to fall into the trap, the lie, and just assume, God must not love me if he's letting me go through this. God must have abandoned me or I wouldn't be feeling this way. I'm sure the Jews felt like that a time or two in exile. And if we only focus on the circumstances, it makes sense to have those thoughts. Esther and the Jews could have gone down that path a lot, but we have the cross. We have a savior who died for us. And when we keep our eyes on that cross we're reminded that there are no limits to what God will do to draw us to him. There's nothing God won't do for his children. He loves us more than we could ever imagine. And our willful obedience should flow out of that love back to him. We have to be willing to abandon the life we planned and dreamed of in order to receive the life God has offered, authored for us. We have to live in that truth that extraordinary moves of God begin with ordinary acts of obedience. I talked earlier about how God uses imperfect people. I, I would really like to wrap this up and, and tell you that, um, that I, I think I'm like Daniel, always choosing the right thing regardless of the consequences. Um, but in reality, I'm a lot more like Esther. I'm an imperfect person stumbling my way into God's use in spite of myself. I think the power of the story of Esther lies in the tension of what we expect and what actually happens, of the Esther we thought we knew and the Esther we read about, between the harsh structure of the law and the desperate need for grace. It's in all of those spaces, all of those pauses, that we see the hand of God at work. That's my prayer for this church. That's what I pray for you guys. That. Um, That tension that we all live in, that we leverage it, that we're willing to abandon the life, your life and the life of the church, willing to abandon what we have planned in order to fulfill God's plans for us, that we live in that truth, that extraordinary moves of God begin with our ordinary acts of obedience. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this church. Thank you for the everyday, ordinary people who fill it who are willing to do extraordinary things for you. God, we pray that we see an extraordinary move happen here in Lakeland because of these ordinary people who fill it. I pray that we're willing to abandon our hopes and dreams and adopt yours instead. pray that we we live in the truth of your love for us, and we walk in light of obedience to that truth. Father, we love you so much, and all this we pray in your name. Amen.